today we're uh, continuing our uh, three-week look at Daniel 3. Uh, I've titled this short series, The Fiery Furnace, Lessons on uh, Faith. Last week, if you weren't here, I preached a message called Fiery Furnace Faith, and we discovered from the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that true faith believes that God is able to deliver us from trouble. True faith goes on and doesn't just believe that God is able to deliver, but believes that God will act on our behalf. So true faith believes that God is able and that God is willing. But then we discovered that you don't have a full picture of biblical faith until we find out that faith always includes these three words, but if not. Even if God doesn't deliver the way that we hope, true faith says that we're still going to trust him we are still going to serve him. Our fidelity to God is not contingent on how things turn out. Our fidelity to God is not contingent on things turning out the way we wanted. We know he is able. We believe he will. But even if God does not do what we want him to do, we remain faithful to him. And so if you weren't here last week and this is your church home, uh, I encourage you to go and listen and uh, keep up to date with the rest of your church family. Today we're once again going to look at Daniel 3. Uh, primarily we're focusing again on verses 16 through 18. And uh, today we're going to focus on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's act of defiance to King Nebuchadnezzar. Today's message is simply titled, Don't Bow Down. We're going to read again about their refusal to bow to the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and we're going to learn why and how they were able to defy a king who had the power to throw them into a fiery furnace and end their lives. And from their example, I hope we're going to be encouraged today to defy the ungodly demands of our culture and that we're going to be encouraged today to never bow down to the idols of our present time, of which there are many. Uh, last week, I summarized the story leading up to verses 16 through 18, but today I want to actually read the account. Uh, so we'll look at the entirety of Daniel 3, 1 through 18. Uh, I think by this point, it's probably on the screen behind me, so you can follow along uh, as I read. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. 
they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, then very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. What an incredible example of faithfulness to God Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego provide us. Captives in a foreign land, standing before a powerful king, given an ultimatum to bow to the golden image or burn, bow or die, and out of faithfulness to God, they refuse to bow. Faced with Nebuchadnezzar and the threat of death in a fiery furnace, these three young men were able to look the king straight in the face and say, we want you to know we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. If we understand the Bible correctly, we know that idols are more than just golden images. We know that idols are more than just statues of false gods or other items crafted out of natural materials by human hands. An idol, according to the Bible, is anything that competes with God for our worship. An idol is anything that we elevate to a place of greater importance than God. It is anything that we serve at the expense of serving God. Anything that we worship at the expense of worshiping God. There are idols that each one of us have a natural inclination toward. For some, an idol might be sex. For another, an idol might be money. For another, an idol might be education. For another, an idol could be entertainment. And on these kinds of idols, our culture stands ready and willing to help us, to assist us, 
in serving these false gods. Whatever your pleasure, whatever your particular weakness, whatever your source of temptation is, our culture stands ready to serve your appetite for idolatry. With many idols, the culture is content to simply serve our appetites. But sometimes our culture goes beyond simply being eager to help us engage in the idolatry of our choosing. And sometimes our culture actually sets up an idol that it demands that we all bow down to. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were demanded to bow down to the image Nebuchadnezzar had set up, we are often demanded to bow down to the idols that our culture sets up. For us in the United States in 2021, we are not currently demanded to bow at the threat of death, but we are demanded to bow under the threat of societal disapproval. We're demanded to bow under threat of being ostracized. Some people are losing their jobs if they don't bow to certain idols of our culture. And I fully expect in the coming years that Christians will increasingly be faced with the option of bowing to the idols of our age or losing their jobs, their incomes, their ability to function in the broader society. And if you don't think that's where things are headed, I would suggest that you read the Bible more frequently <laughs> because the Bible paints that kind of picture for us that this is a future uh, that may very well uh, be coming at us. Let me highlight today just a few of the idols that our culture uh, has set up. Some of these are things that the culture is just happy to let us choose our idol and, and facilitate that for us. But a few of these are things that the culture is attempting to force us to bow down to. I want to highlight just a few. There are a lot more. Uh, but we must refuse to bow down to all of these idols like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow to the golden image. We must refuse to bow, even if it is very costly. Materialism is an idol that Americans are particularly susceptible to. On average, we now live in homes that are twice the size that our grandparents raised sometimes large families in just 50 and 60 years ago. Our culture is now set up where for a married couple, both the husband and wife almost have to work outside the home to provide the minimally acceptable level of stuff, which is largely determined by seeing what everyone else has and matching it or doing better. House, cars, vacations, incessant eating out, which is one I didn't want to list for reasons that will go unstated. <laughs> Phones that cost what cars used to cost. Computers, ever larger TVs. Are any of you feeling like sort of persecuted because your TV is only 50 inches? <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's, that's where we're at these days. Like, oh, I only have a 50 inch TV. $160 tickets to Buckeye games to watch Nonsense. <laughs> Can you imagine having watched, paid $160 to go to that game yesterday? Whew, 
By the way, I just saw that our brother Kevin Tress is in church with us today. Kevin, it's great to see you. God bless you. We love you. Great to have you here. Americans, I'm told, I, I believe this is accurate information, work longer hours than any of the rest of the developed world for the purpose of pursuing more and more. And some of us will object. I, I object often to what I'm saying here today. And we say things like this, I work those long hours just to survive, not to pursue more and more and more. And I believe that. I, I believe that that is true for a lot of us. And in my view, it still just demonstrates how our culture is set up to facilitate the idol of materialism. As the culture is currently set up so that simply maintaining a lower to mid-level middle-class life requires lots of money. That for many people requires lots of hours, husband and wife both working outside the home, latchkey kids, and a whole host of things that we'd all be better off if it were not the case. When the starter home neighborhoods in your community are 2,500 square feet homes that start on the low end at a quarter of a million dollars, and good luck even finding that, you know you are living in a materialistic culture. And materialism is an idol that our culture is more than happy to help us bow down to. And many people, including Christians, do just that. But we must start saying no to materialism. We will not bow down. Universalism is an idol that our culture very much wants everyone to bow down to. We are entering, or we not entering, we are in a time where to suggest that any one religion is true and another religion false is to invite gasp of horror from your book club. Even though it's irrational and illogical, society demands that all faiths and all truth claims be treated as equally valid. And so we live in a time where religions that kill gay people and treat women as property are hailed as religions of peace and as valid as any other, and any criticism is ruled out of bounds while a religion that suggests things like modesty is a good thing and maybe men and women who aren't married shouldn't spend a lot of time hanging out together, that re religion gets derision rained down on it from the keyboard warriors of social media. There are all kinds of idols that we're tempted to bow down to or that society tries to make us bow down to. The devaluing of human life, the rejection of truth, Sometimes people make an idol out of their nation. Sometimes Christians do this. I used to fight with people that would say that some Christians have made an idol out of the United States. I, I would fight with them. I mean, I'd get down in the ditch and fight. No, they don't do that. My eyes have been opened. Some Christians have made an idol out of their nation. And if you could really see into their hearts, what you would discover is that they love the good old USA more than they love Jesus Christ. They have an idol. I just want to highlight one more idol here today. It's an, it's an awkward one. It's an uncomfortable one. 
And it's one that society is doing such a good job telling us all we have to bow down to the way they think that, you know, I'm like sort of nervous talking about it. And that's the idol of sinful sex. Because with this idol, our culture is both set up to facilitate our own personal inclinations towards sinful sex, and our culture is also increasingly demanding that we bow down to sinful expressions of sex or face the consequences. Here's what the Bible clearly teaches. All sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is sinful, displeasing to God, harmful to the individual, and separates us from God. Premarital sex is sin. It remains sin even though the culture says it is not, and it remains sin even though many Christians have chosen to agree with the culture instead of God. Acting on same-sex attraction, homosexual activity, is a sin. It remains a sin even though the culture says it isn't, and it remains a sin even though increasing numbers of self-proclaimed Christians are deciding that it isn't. The Columbus Dispatcher, in an article recently, aghast at the story of a Baptist church in Grove City that tried to help a young man honor God by resisting the temptation to act on his same-sex attraction. Increasingly, the culture is telling us that to try to help people with same-sex attraction live God-honoring lives is to abuse the person. And increasingly, there are consequences that people are facing for trying to do that very thing. The culture increasingly celebrates homosexuality and increasingly demands that no dissenting voices speak up. Some of you are living with this reality in your jobs, where you have to be on guard with your words, you have to be careful even in casual conversations with coworkers that you don't reveal too much about what you think, lest you come in conflict with your diversity, inclusion, and equity department. And our culture, and this is one that I, I hesitate to even mention, I, I mean, this is how effectively the culture is, is telling us all to bow down, but I feel like I have a responsibility to mention it. Our culture is increasingly demanding that we bow down in front of the idol of transgenderism. Now, I want to be clear about something, Christian brothers and sisters. Gender dysphoria is something that real people that Jesus loves experience. And Christians should pray for and stand with and lovingly help anyone who experiences such a condition. And I want to say this clearly as well. Some things Christians post on this topic are awful on social media. They're absolutely awful. And they are unchristlike. Harmful to people that Jesus loves. This is a topic that should be treated seriously, not sarcastically. But increasingly, the culture is demanding that we deny biological reality and the truth that when God created mankind, he created them male 
and female. And I submit to you today that if the culture can demand that you deny biological reality and the truth of the Bible, which are in agreement regarding gender, then the culture can demand anything of you and you will comply. And if you get to the point where you are willing to deny biological reality and the biblical truth about gender, if you get to the point where you bow down to this particular idol the culture has set up, you yourself then are engaging in idolatry. We've talked a lot since the advent of COVID about hills to die on. What is an appropriate hill to die on? Is it masks? It's not for me. I'm not dying on that hill. If it's vaccines, some of, some of us think maybe that's the hill to die on, others of us don't. But if you are looking for a hill that is worth dying on, let me suggest this one. Refusing to bow when the culture demands you deny biological reality and biblical truth, when the culture insists that you bow to that idol, that is a hill you must die on. We must follow the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And like they would not bow to the image Nebuchadnezzar had set up, we must not bow to the idols of our age. There were good reasons, good reasons, why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow and why believers today must not bow to the idols of our age. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow because they knew the first commandment. They knew the first commandment, which we find in Exodus 20, verses 3 through 5. Here is the first commandment. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. God is jealous. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow because they knew and they believed the first commandment. God is jealous. And we cannot elevate anything to a place of importance above him. We cannot serve anything that violates what God has set out as his will for our lives. False gods do not deserve worship. Only the one true God deserves worship. Only the God who is deserves our worship. Deserves for us to bow down to him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow because they knew and believed the first commandment. And they would not bow because they had given ownership of their hearts to God. They understood the first commandment was about more than dutiful obedience. And it is. They knew that to obey the first commandment, a person had to actually love God more than anything else. They lived out Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, which we can think of as an interpretation 
of the first commandment. It's sort of like, here's how you apply the first commandment. Here's what it means. Here's what it looks like. It's an interpretation of the first commandment. Here it is, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the most holy saying uh, in Judaism, by the way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. They really believed that there is only one God. They really believed he alone is worthy. And they had come to love him with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their strength. When our flesh and our culture try to get us to bow, to serve something other than God, it is a test of whether we are people who really know and love God. When faced with an image of gold as they were, or materialism as we are, or universalism as we are, or sexual and gender anarchy as we are, and told to bow to the demands of the age under threat, those who know and love God face the demand, they face the threat, they look straight at it, and they say, we will not bow. Just not going to do it. Not going to do it. And of course, Jesus himself reiterated these things when he was asked what was the greatest commandment. Here's how he answered in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandments. The first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, everything I've ever said to you, hang on these two commandments. Everything. So Jesus affirms what we've already seen in the first commandment and the interpretation of the first commandment, that then he adds something that summarizes the rest of the ten, ten Commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's another reason that we cannot bow to idols. When we do, we may influence others to bow to idols. And when we refuse, we may inspire others to refuse. We help each other remain faithful to God. And when we refuse to bow in front of an idol, we help our brothers and sisters also refuse to bow to idols. Our witness in not bowing down may be used by God to encourage someone else who is facing temptation to bow to stand up and say, nope, I am not going to do that. I will not bow. So these are the reasons why they would not bow. And their example demonstrates to us how to stand up straight, refuse to bow to idols, even when we're faced with a threat. We have to know the truth. We have to know the truth. We have to know Exodus 23 through 5. We have to know Deuteronomy 6, 3, and 4. We have to know Matthew 22, 36 through 40. The truth, if we're going to be people who don't bow to the idols of our age, the truth of God's word has to get in us. It has to get into our hearts. It has to get into our minds. 
which means that we must be committed to reading and learning the truth so that it can get in us and transform us. We have to know the truth. As we read it and allow it in us, it will transform us. And we will come to love God enough that we will not bow down to anything or anyone but him. We resist bowing to the idol of approval by loving God more than we love the approval of other people. We resist bowing down to the idol of money by loving God more than we love money or stuff. We refuse to bow to the idol of comfort by loving God more than comfort. We refuse to bow when faced with societal disapproval or the loss of a job or being ostracized by friends because we love God more than societal approval. We love God more than our job. We love God more than our friends. And if we ever do come to a time and circumstance where we face the threat of death for refusing to bow to a cultural idol, and this does happen to brothers and sisters around the world, if it, if it ever comes here, we'll refuse to bow, even in the face of death, if like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we come to the place we should be, which is the place where we love God even more than life itself. even more than life itself. We have to refuse to bow to idols. And this is the way it happens. We know the truth, and we love God more than anything else. And so I appeal to us today, Living Hope Church, do not bow down to the idols of our age. We cannot bow to the idols of our age to remain faithful to God at the same time. It cannot be done. Don't bow to the idols your flesh is attracted to and the world is eager to help you with. And don't bow to the idols that the world tries to force you to bow down to. Let's be people who will not bow. Before we wrap this up, I do want to make another appeal. We must not bow down to the idols of the world. And we also must not bow down to the idols of other believers. Sometimes, you may have noticed this, other believers can take something that might even be a good thing and they can elevate it to the place of being an ultimate thing. They can elevate something to a place of importance that God does not give it. And when they do, they create what I coined for this sermon, a Christian-approved idol. Sometimes we call these sacred cows. Everybody seems very excited right now. <laughs> I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this or go into much detail. It actually deserves its own sermon. But I would encourage you to read Acts 15 this week. And you will see in Acts 15 a church that was dealing with some sacred cows. 
dealing with some Christian-approved idols. What you'll find out if you read through Acts 15 is that the determination was made that new Christians did not have to bow to the sacred cows of other believers. They did not have to bow to the Christian-approved idols of other believers. Here's what was happening in Acts 15. Gentile believers, the people who were not, but became the people of God, they started seeing the truth about Jesus and coming to believe in him. The Jewish Christians wanted the Gentile Christians to adopt practices that were really important to them. And one of the ones that they most wanted the Gentiles to give proper reverence to was the rite of circumcision. This had been the sign of their covenant with God. And so their attitude was sort of like this. If the Gentiles are going to come to believe in our Messiah, we're okay with that, but we just want them to bleed a little if they're going to be in the club. So if you want our Messiah, you need to be circumcised like we are. Now, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks out extremely forcefully about this and calls what was once a sign of being in covenant with God and the insistence that others do it, Paul called that a false gospel. But in Acts 15, it was sort of a, a new topic, and it was a hot topic, and many Jewish believers wanted Gentiles to properly observe their customs, to bow to their traditions. And so the Jerusalem Council of Early Church Leaders considered this issue, and here's what they determined in the words of Peter from Acts 15. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The conclusion of the early church was that the Gentile believers did not have to bow to Jewish customs to be true Christians. Peter actually said in this text that I read that they would be testing God by requiring the Gentile believers to submit to circumcision. Depending on your church tradition, you may have realized that a good number of Christians concern themselves very much with making sure their fellow believers bow down and give proper reverence to their sacred cows. Very concerned with fellow believers bowing to their misguided Christian-approved idols. There are all kinds of sacred cows. There are all kinds of idols that Christians try to make each other bow down to. Everybody okay? Okay. It's not one that seems to be as prevalent as in years past, but I remember this one from uh, early in my life. Whether you served wine or grape juice for communion used to be a get down in the ditch and fight over thing among Christians. You know this? Did you, did you experience that? Yeah? Okay. 
has to be wine. Absolutely not. Has to be grape juice. You must agree with me. Or you're not just wrong. You're not a true Christian. You're violating the really obscure teaching of the Bible. <laughs> There's another sacred cow. Christian approved idol with some people. You must believe that the rapture will absolutely occur before the tribulation. You must believe this. You must believe this to even be in fellowship with us. There are denominations where you have to affirm a pre-tribulation, and it's fine if you, if you do, but, but it shouldn't be a cause of fellowship. It shouldn't be a litmus test of fellowship. There are denominations where you must affirm a pre-tribulational rapture to even be a part of the denomination. It is a sacred cow. How do you baptize? Do you dunk a person three times? Or do you just dunk them once? <laughs> do you say in the name of Jesus? Or do you say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Or do you do it the way we do it here, which is both? Because <laughs> I wanted to be able to say to any sacred cow worshipers, I think we covered all the bases. <laughs> How do you do it? It must be this way. No, it must be this way. A church should only sing hymns. If you want to be relevant, a church should only sing contemporary worship songs. There must be a cross for every 1,000 square feet of floor space. Any self-respecting church must have offering plates with red felt in the bottom of the plate. I, I was actually a part of a church one time where a guy threatened to take his massive tithes and go home if he wasn't allowed to buy the offering plates he wanted the church to, to have. And if I remember correctly, he was told to go on home. Rich Nathan, the senior pastor of the Columbus Vineyard, tells the story that early on in his pastorate, when the church was young and fledgling, a very large donor came and demanded to be able to buy him a pulpit because he thought it was appalling that Rich used a music stand to preach the holy word of a holy God. He needed a pulpit. And Rich said, I, I just don't think we need a pulpit. I mean, it's just kind of not our vibe here. And, uh, and so, yeah, I don't think we need that. Well, you're either going to let me buy a pulpit or I'm taking my money and I'm leaving. So long. <laughs> Goodbye. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. That's the way Rich responded to him. And whether you like that or not, it is a godly response to a bully. Whew. All right. Here, here are more sacred cows. The church should never sing a song with the words sloppy wet kiss in it. Ooh. <laughs> Got a few of you there. A church should never sing a song with the word evolving in it. That's a newer controversy that some of you may not even know about. A church should never sing songs from this group or that group because one of their leaders once said something that was slightly off base. Sacred cows. Christian-sanctioned idols that misguided Christians sometimes try to get each other to bow down to. 
I appeal to us today, don't bow down to the idols of this world. And I appeal to us today to not bow down to the sacred cows of misguided Christians. No idols, no sacred cows, do not bow down. And don't be a Christian who tries to get others to bow down to your sacred cow. Don't do it. Let me, <laughs> let me wrap this up. I'm thinking of this story that I want to tell you. It's hilarious. I laughed too early. <laughs> there was another reason I laughed, but I can't tell you that. All right. I want to wrap this up by telling the story of a tyrannical little boy, a worm, and a mom who should have said no. All right. There was a little boy one day who brought a big, long, juicy worm into the house. He ran into the house. He said, Mama, Mama, look. Look at this big, juicy worm I've got. And the mom was appalled because she did not want a big, juicy worm in her house. And so she said, I'm going to name him Johnny. Apologize to any Johnnies in the room. She said, Johnny, mommy doesn't want a worm in the house. Take that thing out of here right now. I don't want that in here. But Johnny wanted the worm in the house. And so Johnny started to whine and, and I want the worm, mommy. No, Johnny, take the worm outside. No, I want the worm in the house, mommy. And mommy decided that a worm in the house was not as bad as a little boy pitching a fit. And so she said, okay, Johnny, you can keep the worm in the house. Johnny played with the worm for a little while, but then he wasn't satisfied playing with the worm by himself. And so he brought the worm into his mom, and he said, Mom, play with the worm with me. Here, Mommy, play with the worm. And mommy did not want to play with the worm. And she decided, this is where I'm going to draw the line. And so she said, Johnny, I will not play with that worm. But Johnny really wanted mommy to play with the worm. And so Johnny started pitching a fit, screaming and crying and hollering and, Mommy, mommy, play with the worm. Ah, mommy, mommy, play. And mommy decided that it was not as bad to play with a worm as it was to listen to a tyrannical little boy pitch a fit. And so mommy started playing with the worm. Johnny was happy with that for a while, but eventually Johnny had a different idea. He said, Mommy, I'd like you to fry this worm for me, Mommy. Put it in a skillet and fry it for me. And she said in her mind, I will not fry a worm. This is where I draw the line. But it was not where she drew the line. Because she eventually decided that it was not as bad to fry a worm as it was to put up with the incessant screaming of her precious little boy. So they fried the worm. And Johnny says to Mommy, cut it in half, Mommy. Cut the worm in half. She said in her mind, this is where I draw the line. I will not cut this worm in half. I have gone as far as I will go. I will go no further. But Johnny started to pitch another fit. And, and she decided, it is not as bad to cut the worm in half 
as it is, to listen to Johnny pitch his fit. And so she cut the worm in half. And as soon as she did, Johnny said, eat your half, mommy. (laughs) And she said, I will not eat a worm. I have done everything he has asked me to do. This is where I draw the line. I will not eat a worm. But Johnny desperately wanted his mom to eat a worm. And so Johnny pitched the biggest fit he had pitched yet. He screamed and hollered and cried. And she finally said, it's not as bad to eat a worm as it is to listen to this incessant crying. And so with one quick gulp, She swallowed her half of the worm. Johnny started pitching the biggest fit he had pitched yet. He threw himself on the ground. He banged his legs against the floor. He he just was beside himself. It was the worst of any of the displays of anger he had shown to this point. And so the mom says, Johnny... What's the matter? Johnny, I let you bring the worm into the house. Johnny, I played with the worm like you wanted me to. Johnny, I fried the worm just like you told me to. Johnny, I cut the worm in half. Johnny, I ate half of the worm. Johnny, what are you upset about? And the little tyrant looked at her and said, you ate my half. Here's the moral of this story. Here is is the moral of this story. Here at Living Hope Church, we're not going to bow down to any idols. We're not going to adopt any sacred cows. And we're not going to eat any worms. Why don't you stand?